Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Die Living Podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Softly Die Living Podcast. Today we're honored to have Curtis Iovito with us from Spartan Blades. I have heard a lot of awesome stories from uh, from Doug about Curtis and the, the Spartan Blade crew. And I have one of their knives, and it's one of my favorites. I carry it with me every day. It's in my pocket right now. So Brian, Brian has his on the table that's right. right now. <clears throat> and uh, I'm excited to have Curtis here and learn a lot more about his story because uh i've only heard bits and pieces from doug so, so. <clears throat> it's actually kind of funny because i'm sure at this point if anybody's ever gotten to like read the spartan blades website they see and uh, they see you know all the knives they've made and they're like oh these guys are clearly sf guys and i when i first got to know curtis i went in and curtis gave me this spiel about how like well, we, we didn't start an SF company. We started a knife company, and we just figured that people would figure it out along well, the way. It's funny. Oh, Actually, uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No, it's, we were told early on, you know, if you're special forces guys that make knives and they're shitty, everybody in the industry will know you as the special forces guys that make shit. So we uh, said, well, let's make quality knives first, and then we'll let people know that we were in SF. I like that philosophy. Well, dude, and it's funny because, like, they make the nicest. I mean, you guys, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys still consider yourselves as production knives, right? Well, semi-production or mid-tech. Yeah. I mean, we use, we do small batch production because we just can't keep up with the demand anymore, but we physically touch and assemble and check out every knife. There's a lot of handwork that goes into them. So it's, it's half production. I mean, we do the things we can't do in-house. And then we make sure that uh, we touch every knife, hone it, put it together, make sure it works properly. So a little bit, a little bit of everything. Right on. So <clears throat> where did you guys start? Because I know now you have a, your office is, well, you're split production and office wise. And uh, I know that you occupied a building on US-1 in Southern Pines that used to be the Lobster, right? It was the Lobster Restaurant, a Sandhills tradition since 1969. Yeah, I still have old ladies knocking at the door and golfers coming to Pinehurst wanting to get a good meal. So, you <laughs> know, I offer them like a Mountain Dew and a Ho-Ho or something like that and try to sell them a knife. I have pictures but, uh, of like Goodfellas in my mind. Yeah. Like guys rolling up in like old Cadillacs. <laughs> no, we started in, actually in a barn in Aberdeen, North Carolina. Um, my partner Mark had a, had a small barn there. So we built the office upstairs, started making the knives downstairs. And then uh, it grew and grew and grew, you know, and then we have people want to come by the shop and they're like, I'm lost. I'm in a residential area. And I said, yeah, you're in a red Subaru, right? And like, How do you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'm right in front of you on that little tiny building. Well, I know that uh, I, so I, I was a knife snob. Brian and I both were into knives because <laughs> one of our friends, Ryan Renyort, worked kind of like part-time for Mixed Rider. And so, like, he got us these great deals on Strider knives, and we we're like, we'd never seen anything like it before. I mean, they're like, n- knives are built like hatchets, you know? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Super tough. <laughs> so, well, it was really my first, I, my first experience at all with ultra high end cutlery of any sort. Yeah. And I was like, oh, 
it's not, it's a buck knife. Like, is that like a really good one? So yeah. we we didn't know otherwise. I mean, I think that we we had Camelises and you know Benchmades, and we thought Benchmade was like an Emerson Benchmades, yeah. the top of the line. Oh yeah, can't get better. Then Renuart gave us Strider knives. Like essentially, he's like, here, have this, and we were like, what? is this black magic like this is <laughs> super cool right i could go chop down a tree with this thing yeah i took one to i took one to sear school with me and i chopped down a tree with it and i thought i knew a lot about knives cuz we went to we went to blade show together and we met um when we met all the big players so like that's when we met um bill harsey and made friends with him brian and i lived out of my truck we didn't have enough money for a hotel room so we took my girlfriend at the time in my red truck we drove down to atlanta and we slept in the parking lot um, and we met a bunch of old cool Mac V Sog guys, a bunch of like old agency guys. And we did not know you guys from Adam. I don't think you were at that blade show actually. Cause it was 2007, I think. Nope. 2008 was our fir- first blade show. Well, I went to Robin Sage and my team leader was Jason Kohler, who. <laughs> he was my old uh, junior Bravo in first group. Exactly. And so he's telling me, Hey, there's these dudes that are making knives in Aberdeen. They're friends of mine. You probably want one. If you're, if you're into cool knives, you're going to be into what they're making. And I was like, whatever you're, I mean, I worship the ground Jason walks on. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Like he's the only senior enlisted guy I know that made eight did team sergeant time and then decided to go to OCS because he didn't want to be second in charge. He's like, Oh, why didn't you just go warrant? He's like, who wants to be second in charge? <laughs> and you're like, that's Jason. Yep. That's fair, man. Like Jason, it, he was the like highest attention to detail, highest performer I've ever worked around to this day. Like I look back at people who are squared away in the regiment and Jason is. No, I, I agree. I taught him everything I knew. He was my junior Bravo. But yeah, Jason definitely told me about you guys. And, um, you know, he's like, you should go over there and check it out. And because he told me that, I filed it away in the back of my memory as like, these guys aren't real. They're just friends of this dude I know. And then slowly but surely, like you guys started to turn out products that I was like, holy shit. Like these are really, really nice knives. Yeah, it was a little slow starting out. You know, you spent your, you spend your whole life in, in SF. Hey, don't talk about what you do. Don't believe your own propaganda. You know, <laughs> so we're like, well, we'll be the quiet professional knife makers. And uh, you, you can't be that damn quiet. Or people aren't going to know who you are. So that was kind of a change for us. You know? Well, definitely, I think that where we are now, I mean, in the year 2017, we're really starting to see guys who are walking that line. Like, you guys have uh, performed honorably, professionally, like a credit to the regiment in the way that you represent yourselves as former Special Forces soldiers. And I think it's, again, a good example to, to guys like myself and Brian and uh, Brent, like, on how to say, hey, this is something I did. Um, it is who I am in some way, but this is also what I'm doing now, which isn't actually tied to what I did. Right. But, right. you know, like, I learned a lot about what I like from my experiences in the military and I can talk about my experiences without cheapening them or selling them as, you know... I think there's a difference between circus. the experiences that forge who you are, you know, forge your identity, and taking an experience and making that your identity. You know, singling one thing and saying, this is who I am, you know, for all time. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, Curtis, if you can take us back a little bit, tell us a little bit more maybe about your career in sure. the Army. Um, and then, sure. you know, well, why Knives? Well, actually, it started out in the Marine Corps. Right. Uh, 
I was, I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, I was a young kid. I wanted to get out of the house. Podcast over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found out who my father was, so I <laughs> immediately got out of the Marine Corps. No, I actually loved the Marine Corps. I, I had a very intelligent squad leader said, Curtis, don't reenlist. Do what we did. Get out, take a free month of leave, come back and reenlist. So I was like, wow, that guy's smart. In May 86, <laughs> he must know what the hell he's talking about. So I was like, well, I'm going to be smart like him. I got out. It was right during the Grand Rudman budget cuts. So I get out and I try to come back in. They're like, oh, we're sorry, Curtis. You can't come back in the Marine Corps. I said, well, why not? And they said, I said, uh, what about once a Marine, always a Marine? And they said, Curtis, you will always be a Marine. We just can't activate you right now. So uh, I was like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? I was always told the Army was no good and they're, they're second place. But Correct. I heard it, <laughs> but I, but, but I, I heard about these guys called the 82nd Airborne. I said, like, well, they jump out of airplanes and shit. I can do that. And this time, I was is a little it, smarter. Is, I went to a recruiter and I said, you aren't going to give me an MOS. I'm going to get what I want. He's like, okay, all right. What do you want? I want to be in the infantry. He's like, I think I can do that. You know? <laughs> so uh, uh, my first day in the Army was at uh, Airborne School. And now I'm a Marine, in essence, in an Army uniform. And they're like, well, you're an E4. Why don't you march these troops to chow? It's like, all right. All right, they got a word. Martin, they're like, shut the fuck up. Get, somebody <laughs> speaks English. So I got fired. I yep. put this little girl in charge, and she marches to chow. But uh, there's a little bit of culture shock. But, uh, man, this guy came by in a black beret and showed me a video of people jumping out of airplanes and skydiving and shooting machine guns and wearing dirty uniforms. I said, I'm going to do that. Uh, so he was from RIP. So I was going to go into Ranger Battalion. So I was like, well, this ought to be a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. So I went to RIP. They sent me a second <laughs> Ranger Battalion. Uh, they're like, and, and back in those days, they didn't take guys from other units. You came right off the street, basic training, airborne school, and they molded you into what they wanted you to be. This sounds Which, surprisingly like the 18 X-ray pipeline that everyone oh, has yeah. maligned. Yeah. But uh, they're like, we got a guy, he's already in E4. We don't even know how to talk to this guy. He doesn't have a Ranger tab, but he's in E4. How the hell did he get here? So I had to explain I was a Marine, and they like, oh, so you can shoot. I said, yeah, I guess. So they gave me a rifle, maybe a platoon sniper. So uh, that's where my sniping career started. I uh, left there, went to a Lurse company, did a few years there, jumped into Panama. That was fun. And he jumped in, killed everybody, and <laughs> said Merry Christmas and left. It was awesome. Only lasted three weeks. Um, eventually went to the, an infantry unit, long-range surveillance unit, which was great. Loved it. But, you know, like everybody else, you want a little more. So I volunteered for Special Forces, 18 Bravo. I had a, a 122 GT score, and they said, well, you're going to be a medic. And I said, no, I'm not. They said, yes, you are. I said, well, I wasn't a ranger. It's like, oh, okay, you can be a weapons guy. <laughs> so, ranger smart. Yeah, yeah. Big like tractor, smart like truck, right? So I went special forces, went to first group, uh, Fort Lewis. Uh, Which explains a, why you're so weird. Yeah, I was on an SOT team. <laughs> so a lot of ammo, uh, a lot of shooting. Eventually ended up in Okinawa, went to C-11, a sniper troop, stayed there for four years. I was there in a three-year tour, and I begged them to keep me for a fourth year. I loved it. You know, it was Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, Philippines, Korea, working <laughs> with Tier 1 forces. I would have stayed there, you know, until I, I was in my 80s. But they wouldn't let me stay a fourth year. So about a month out from leaving PCS and back to Fort Bragg, they said, hey, we're critically short people. We can give you a bonus or extra leave if you'll stay for another year. So I was like, yes. yeah, hand over the cash, man. When's our next deployment? So I did four years in a sniper troop there. They sent me back to Fort Bragg. Uh, to work at the Special Warfare Center. I think I was headed out to Camp McCall to teach like, land navigation or how to eat bark or something like that. But uh, 
good friend of mine was the NTYC, the, the sniper school there. He pulled me aside and said, hey, Curtis, you're coming over here. So Wait, who is this good friend? Mark Carey, who is now my <laughs> business partner at Spartan Blades. <laughs> yeah, so, Mark uh, is never shy to point out that he was the NCIC while Curtis was merely an instructor. Yeah, so he, you know, he saved my life, pulled me over there, and uh, it sucked. I worked in shorts and T-shirts and baseball hats for a few years till I retired. Um, I went to work for an evil corporation that I won't name who taught me all the things not to do in business. It was fantastic. I did that for a year. I like how he uh, doesn't name the evil corporation, but it's still the U.S. government. That's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I eventually... Uh, Cue the dark and shady yeah. portion of Curtis's career. And then I worked for a, an unnamed government agency for a while as a contractor, uh, while being six years. Um, and then as I was doing that, Mark and I started Spartan Blades. I think we made a batch of 30 knives. We risked everything, all the extra cash we had laying around, and uh, kind of rolled the dice on, on starting our own company. And uh, and now we're here today, almost nine years later. Killing it. Doing all right. But yeah. why why Spartan Blades? You know, why when you were getting well, out? Well, you know, it, that's, that's actually a great question. Everybody expected us to, to go into firearms. We'd worked a lot in weapons development in the Army. Uh, we had a lot of input into uh, tactics and procedures and in down select and night vision and things like that. We're, we were known as career snipers. I ran the sniper committee at first group for a year, spent four years in a CT unit in the sniper troop and then SODIC. So it was kind of a natural progression, but we looked at that industry and God bless that industry, some good folks there, but it's a razor fight for a nickel in that industry. And I've watched people go from company to company to company. And I was like, you know, I've made knives in the past. Uh, pe- people like them. You don't have to explain how to use it. You know, it's kind of <laughs> like a claymore front towards enemy. Even easier in a claymore. Uh, sharp, pointy, good heat treat. So we made a small batch. We looked at it. We did two business plans: one for Spartan weapon systems that didn't happen, and one for Spartan blades. Which was uh, what was your first knife? First knife was Ares. We built a fighter. We figured, hey, you know, people are going to know us as military guys. I'd like to make a lightweight, well balanced fighter, and uh, so it's called the Ares. Was that the one that looks like the Kukri a little bit? It's got a little bit of a curve in deep it. deep belly. So, yeah, so as you thrust forward, it's parallel to the ground. Yep. Yeah. See? There's logic to that. So we uh, yeah, started in a knife company, and then we've worked hard at it ever since. And it, it just every year, it's doubled and doubled and doubled in size. So what did you guys do out of the gate? I know you said you know, kind of started out focused on... Well, what being... we did, you know, after starting a company, and I think we were talking about maybe talk a little bit about forming the company, some of the things that happen. You know, every special forces guy, when he retires, has this kind of black ball right behind his sternum in the middle of his chest that's full of anxiety and nervousness about retiring. You know, you got these guys who have been premier operators for years, and they're like, now what? Do, Who I mean, am I? Do I, go, I guess I can be a copper teacher. Because when you go to those ACAP classes, when you're getting ready to retire, you're like, you have two choices. You can do anything. This is a checking account. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this, this is a checking account. This is what debt looks like. This is a ledger. Uh, and you can do anything you want as long as it's teacher or a cop. You know? but, uh, so guys are scared when they're told that. And, uh, and a lot of guys set up jobs for themselves uh, doing cubicle warfare, but that's just a slow death. But uh, we, we tell the guys, save what money you can. Take a month off after you retire for yourself to get your head straight. You know, just take a month, sit at home, hang out with your wife, get to know your kids a little bit, go talk to your friends in other industries, find out what's going on, and don't rush into anything. And, uh, and I think that's great advice. And I also tell them, listen, if you've got it in you, you know, second chances just don't come that often in life. This is your chance to do what you want to do. You served your country. 
you served your the, your brothers on your team. Now it's kind of like you time. Yeah. You know, it's always been about the team. Now you get to step back, take care of yourself and your family, but you just don't get a lot of shots at a second chance. But now and, you get to figure out what yeah. being a, a workaholic for yourself is like. Yeah. Yeah. Self-induced <laughs> stress. Yeah. But uh, I tell guys, if you can, sit down and think about what you want to do and see if you can't build a business around that and reach out to people who might be able to help you. But at some point, you got to roll the dice. You know, you, oh, yeah. You, you got you to bet it all. Well, That's hard and you got to be sometimes. smart, too. I mean, like, I think that it says a lot when you're like a, ra- a razor fight for a nickel in the tactical <clears throat> industry. Right. Like, it doesn't take a lot to be, qual- I mean, to be qualified to teach in that realm. Like, there are way overqualified guys in the weapons and tactics world. And right. there are guys <laughs> that, like, did one three-year tour as a Marine that are like, hey, maybe they're mm-hmm. good teachers or maybe they're not. They're just, they're selling <laughs> something, right? Well, a good shooter is not always a good teacher and vice versa. But I think that it says a lot that like when you're saying, hey, man, do something for yourself, like guys should practice self-awareness and understand like, hey, even though I love guns and I love tactics, maybe that's not a place where I can sustain myself either. You know, like I do something for yourself, but like doing something that costs you your entire retirement check every month and never makes you any money is not something that's going to make you happy. That's right. And the other advice I give people is to reach, you know, figure out what you want to do and reach out to somebody who's already a success there. When we decided we wanted to make knives, you know, we didn't know people in that industry. So we reached out to them and we asked ourselves, who does it best? Who makes the best knives on the planet? Who was it? It was Chris Reeve Knives in Idaho. Yep. So, you know, I was the next guy, probably the fourth guy that day to call up and said, hey, I want to be a knife maker. Can you tell me how to be a knife maker? <laughs> you know, and, and he gave me a standard response. He's like, yeah, get in your car, travel to Atlanta at the International Blade Show, then hop on an airplane, fly out to Idaho, and I can give you four days. Well, most people don't do that. Yeah, well, you so, randomly cold called Chris, and he basically yeah, exactly. was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to teach you how to make knives. Right. So we show up at Blade Show, and he's like, who the hell are these guys? We've got these three crappy knives in a bag. These are our <laughs> models. We put a lot of thought into them. And he told us how shitty they were, and we redesigned them. But then we showed up to his house in Idaho, and his, his wife, Ann, answers the door. She's like, can I help you? And I was like, uh, yeah, we're staying in your house. What time's breakfast? And she's like, who the hell are these guys? But uh, And they're both South African, so <laughs> yeah, like, both, yeah. they have very proper accents, and they're very, like, very- Very dry people. Yes. Yeah. My, my two favorite uh, African-Americans, <laughs> oh, Chris yes. and Ann Reeve in Here Idaho. But- uh, <laughs> They took us to their shop for a week. They took Mark and showed him the admin side, explained you know, why you might or might not want to use distributors, the costing that's involved, capturing costs, talked to Chris about manufacturing. Was Chris selling a lot of stuff to Knife Art at that point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, He yeah. selling a lot of stuff to everyone. <laughs> and I'm pretty point. sure, I mean, that's one of the things that drove Chris's, the, the, their financial success was being able to like wholesale sell knives at a marked up price for art sales type stuff, right? Oh, sure. Well, they, uh, yeah, they have one price. These are knives. Here's what they do, and here's what they cost. You can buy it or not. And then knife art marks. But he had such fantastic quality. Yep. It, you know, people have to buy them. How if, many if years you're not a real knife dealer if you didn't have them? He won the manufacturing quality award at the International Blade Show. I want to say twelve years in a row. Like, didn't he just stop competing? He did. They actually inducted him into the uh, the Blade Hall of Fame and talked about naming that award after him, calling it the Chris Reeve Award. So Mar- Martin Bennett showed me his uh, Sabenza. Uh, full-size Sabenza folder when we were at Blade Show. I was like, if you want to mm-hmm. buy one knife, this is the knife to buy. And I was like, 
why? Like, it's very expensive. It's simple. There's mm. nothing cool about it. And he's like, he hands me this brand new Savenza. I mean, looking, he's like, I've had this knife for seven years. I used a sledgehammer to <laughs> on it to re, uh, remove a transmission from an engine block. And he's like, look at it. And I'm like, this is a brand new knife. Yeah. And he's like, no, it's not. He's like, I beat the shit out of it for seven yeah. years. And I'm like, wow. Yeah, so, fantastic individuals. But, you know, they, they're very accepting. Most professionals, if they believe you're serious, are willing to pass along what they know. We always joke in the knife industry, there's no competition. If, if I make a quality knife and I treat people right, who buys one high-quality knife? D- Doug, how many knives do you have? Um, like 20. Yeah, like 20. I don't... Are they all from the same guy? <laughs> I, have, I have five of yours, and I've got five Chris Reeves knives, and then I have a few one-offs. And all the rest are illegal Chinese counterfeits. <laughs> <laughs> so for the and record, all the rest he took off dead hookers I in do, Thailand, right? I do not want to delve into the illegal counterfeit conversation when Brian and I realized that no one could tell the difference. You know, like yeah, except the blades bend in half, which, yeah. which is well, that's the hard that's the hard part. Like when you talk, like I remember how angry Chris was at Shot Show in what did we go to Shot Show two thousand seven as well? Yeah, it was, I went in oh eight. I went the first year they were there. I don't think you were there. Yeah, I think I was busy getting kicked out of the Q course or going to Afghanistan or something like that. I believe that's true. (laughs) (laughs) No, knockoffs are a big problem. We we get counterfeited all the time. Yeah. And and you just, it's like playing whack-a-mole. You're not going to stop it. And actually, we found out the best way to do it is uh, we have user groups online. We'll let them know, hey, we're being knocked off and these guys are selling our knives. You know, they'll just send them emails and spam and viruses and that kind of thing. Very polite cease and desist letters. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So. Well, I mean, uh, to the naked eye, like guys have, that, that's actually one of the other cool things about the industry that I started to realize. Like, I, how do you guys source your blades? We buy our steel out of New York from Crucible Steel. We Which, buy S35VN. It's the best steel out That was there. exactly what I was hoping you were going to say. Because yeah. yeah. I know that when we first went to Blade Show and we're talking with Bill, Bill would like, the most important meetings he was going to were Crucible Steel oh, yeah. meetings. He's like, oh, yeah. I'd like to hang out with you guys, but I got to go to this Crucible Steel meeting. And I mean, well, Crucible really invented the idea that there should be a knife steel. Like it's it- yeah. Actually, speaking of Chris Reeve and Crucible, uh, Bob Skibinski, who's a metallurgist there at Crucible, along with some some other fantastic individuals, along with Chris Reeve, all sat down in a room, came together, and said, "What do people want in a knife steel? How do we make the premier steel?" specifically for what our customers do. and uh, This was S30V, you know, right? And that was S30V to start. So, you know, we're going to have this much vanadium. And, th- you know, and they, just, they just came up with a, a process called particle steel or CPM, you know, crucible particle metal. And what they do is they take a very, very specific recipe and put that in the steel so they know exactly what's in there. And then what they do is they run it through a jet of plasma and turn it to tiny, tiny little particles and melt that all together. So you get this fantastic... Yeah, kind of boring in it. But no, they no, make some well, kick-ass no, steel. Like, well, as, opposed to just, as opposed to just like dumping it all, melting it, and like well, stirring right. it with a stick, you're like making sure it's completely homogenous. The right. T2000. And then, uh, and then a very specific criteria for heat treating, double deep, cryogenic treating, tempered at exact temperatures, which, you know, for years you couldn't do. Matter of fact, we, we heat treat our knives right here in North Carolina at uh, American Metal and Heat Treating. They're a world-class heat treater. They had the first vacuum furnace for a controlled atmosphere to, to be able to do very critical heat treating uh, here in North Carolina. And, uh, I mean, there's some small companies who use them, like Honda, Jet, you know, little yeah. companies like it's, that. So I think it's worth, it's worth it for 
So this is like, to me, the most interesting part of the podcast is talking to you about like the tech side of how knives are are made. I think it's worth first rewinding and saying like, hey, we've kind of touched on the fact that there's a real value. Like we did a piece on perpetual timekeeping, like the value of owning a Rolex. Oh, yeah. You know, like a mechanical watch has a real value as an operator. I have to say when Curtis walked in, one of the first things I noticed was like, Man, this guy's got good taste and watches. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're when you're this ugly, you know, you need shiny watches. <laughs> but I I think that like the same thing happens with knives where guys that when we talked about like hey, I have a benchmade. It's a great knife, right? Like until I bought a really nice knife which happened to be a Sapenza, um sure. I had no idea what made a better knife more valuable to me, like a durable like long lasting non corrosive steel knife like you know that is mm. hands down better than essentially a spray painted blade mm. in a and, and you know we talk about benchmade gerber and these other companies it's not to discount what they do what they provide you for the price you pay is a good value oh absolutely so but people will say you know all the time mm. like well that's an expensive i spent 100 dollars on that knife and it's really expensive and i'm saying hey you you ask how many knives I own. Yeah. I, I own quite a few. Right. Um, they come out, they go through a rotation, but I, I treat knives pretty hard. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. like I don't, I never thought to myself, I shouldn't do this with a knife, right? I sometimes <laughs> like have to mail it back. Yeah, I know. I people. sharpened your knife the other day. <laughs> I may or may not have pulled a bunch of brass casings out of an M4 that had like a yeah. triple feed and there was like notches all in my hand, custom Damascus blade. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it happens. Yeah. So, I, I think there's a value to that. And I think there's also a value to understanding what gets us to a vastly superior technological mm-hmm. product and this money, like this relationship that has happened between custom high-end knife makers and Crucible Steel has developed to the point where, you know, you used to buy a pocket knife and it was absolutely like an old timer with a high carbon content that right. was going to stain and get old. And that was just what we accepted. Or you bought a like a surgical steel four forty C baby. Yep. Yeah, yeah surgical steel knife. Yeah. No, it's funny you mentioned four forty C. At the time it was the miracle steel. Steel can't get any better. It is what it is. You pull the ore out of the ground and four forty C's the best we're ever gonna have. And everybody loved it. And now you mentioned they're like four forty C. That's crap. Well man. I had I, I But you know, if it's heat treated properly, it's 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 not bad. Well the heat treating is an enormous part of that puzzle but like i had an i had a knife the other day that i was using that I grabbed out of like some bin and i was trying to pry something open and it was 440c and the whole edge like not just rolled not a burr like the whole edge rolled in a, a 30 second of an inch like an enormous amount and like i was like i could either like spend a bunch of time and regrind this blade down in my basement or i could throw it to the trash can and that's where it went yeah <laughs> but there's, there's a few things to consider when, when you're picking a steel as well. You know, what's it going to be used for? What's the, what's the intent? What's the purpose? Um, the steels we use with the heat treat we use, they're a little harder to sharpen. You know, so everything's a trade-off. It's like a trade-off between, you know, a long gun where you're flat down on the ground or an assault rifle where you got to be able to hold with one hand and jump over a fence. Everything's a trade-off. We heat treat our steels and make them a little harder to sharpen because when we talk to troops, I'll ask them, hey, how do you sharpen your knife? He's like, well, I, I don't. So what do you do when it gets dull? I was like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Just, so, just cuss it and so, say the knife sucks. So the, the, the reason we make it slightly harder to sharpen is because it'll hold an edge longer and a guy will make it through a deployment. Yes. You know, so, so you got, you got to measure some of those things as well. But I mean, so. I, I think that, so like 
<laughs> the knife industry is weird because there's like it's like a combination of this technical. You guys, I mean, you guys are the pioneers. You're on the front end. The way your your relationship with Crucible, the demand that you're creating, is driving technological gains that are trickling down into the consumer knife market. I mean, right. if you look, sure. Benchmade has S30 V blades now. Spyderco, like everybody, yeah. There, there's all- an option for a high end steel in most most knives. Yeah. You know, quite honestly, for Crucible Steel and large steel companies. Knife makers aren't the, the larger portion of their business. I mean, they're, they're serving, <laughs> yeah, they're serving you know the paper cutting industry, the automotive industry. You know, when the automotive industry took a hit, so did Crucible Steel. I mean, it just it just rocked them. Well, machining is and a I'm, weird like it, I mean, yeah, it almost rocked them looking. into non-existence, really. But knife makers and knife buyers and educated knife public, they know everything about the steel, the heat treat. I mean, I've seen kids, 18, 19 year old kids argue with world-class metallurgists online on a forum to the point I had to shut it off. And p- people are very well educated. And that's why the steel companies love working with knife makers because they, they progress forward. They move forward. They're always looking for more wear resistance. They're always looking for more toughness torsionally. You know, they, we don't want our stuff to rust. So they create that for them. And it's kind of testbed marketing for these, you know, what they call the miracle or super steels that other industries will use down the line. Automotive industry, they'll make pistons out of them. Well, so we're kind of the test bed for metallurgy. Well, we I th- and I think that's what, like, Crucible, really, we saw the beginning of that. Like, S30V was kind of, like, coming out when he and I were getting into and the I remember Bill, ta- Bill would talk about, like, well, they just want me to tell them what's good. And Bill's so humble. I think Brian and I both, like, we're like, who is this guy that everybody worships? Like, he's super nice to us. He, carry, like, he lets us follow him around by his coattails. He introduces us to everybody like he's our friend. And Brian at some point asked Bill, he's like, Hey, um, I get the impression you're you're famous. Are you like a <laughs> are you like a really well known knife maker or whatever? Or like are you like the best knife maker ever? And Bill like was in his in his like Oregon country voice, like, Well, I wouldn't say that I was famous or the best knife maker ever, but if there was a meeting of the best knife makers ever, I would probably have a seat at the table. <laughs> and, uh, and for those of you who don't know who Bill Harsey is, he, he's uh, out of Cresswell, Oregon. He's a famous knife maker. He designed uh, the Yarborough knife that the Special Forces were issued for years. He started out his career grinding knives along with Al Mar for Colonel Rex Applegate. Uh, you know. and, I mean, the well, Rex Applegate that, story. I, I, when I went to Cresswell, when I was, I was up in Seattle doing some training up there, and me and a couple of my buddies drove down to Cresswell to just hang out with Bill. And he, this is before he had his new shop. This is like yeah. his old shop. And... He's like, yeah, so the, here's all the really cool machining tools that I have. Here's my lathe. It's accurate. It's like a hundred thousandth of an inch. Here's this thing. It's accurate. It's like this. Where did you buy all this, man? Because I don't see any like manufacturing marks. He's like, oh, no, I made everything in here. He did. He, he makes all his own tools. Like I manufactured yeah. and machined from scratch. So like, well, what is the like, <laughs> what is the, the, the proto tool? Like what is the first tool? He's like, well, I had this grinder. And I had this other thing. And like, so then I used that to make a lathe, my mm-hmm. bench grinder, like all this other stuff, hyper precision right. things. He had like laying outside, he had done this beautiful welding on this bumper for his truck, just by the by. Like, oh yeah, I needed a new bumper for the truck. So I, I threw this together. And it's just these gorgeous TIG welds. I mean, it could have been in a magazine. It's even well, more just, amazing. Just, just that- to prove how cool this guy is. He, his son used to hang out in the shop with him as a kid after school. His son now works for SpaceX. Yeah. Really? And uh, yeah, he builds portions of the aircraft for SpaceX. And if you don't know how competitive that is, it's incredibly competitive. It's like one out of every 200 applicants gets accepted. Yeah. And only one out of 100 of those get to stay. But uh, Bill always jokes, man, if he keeps, he keeps working for that Elon Musk guy, 
We'll get him trained. He'll be able to make a pocket knife. Be yeah. awesome. <laughs> but I mean, Bill's like a Bill's a logger, man. Like yeah. Bill doesn't tell you stories about like the only cool guy story I've ever heard Bill tell was when he accidentally cut his finger off or whatever when he was grinding the third of twenty five prototype Har- uh, Yarboroughs and. He's like, he's like, well, I committed to making 25 of them. So, like, he went into the doctor, and they were like, well, we can stitch you back together, but you're going to have to have, like, major reconstructive surgery. And he's like, he's like, make it good for me now. I'm going to go back and finish grinding the other 23 knives or 22 knives, and uh, and and I'm going to make a special treat, too, for the surgeon. So, like, while he's making the 22 other knives, he hand grinds his own scalpel and then brings it in and gives it to the surgeon who's going to fix his hand. And he's like, uh, you can do the surgery with this scalpel and only this scalpel. And, and when you think Bill's kidding about things like that, <laughs> he sent me a picture about a year and a half ago of a guy that had a tumor removed from his neck with a Spartan RZ fold. I was like, man, I, I am not putting that. I probably shouldn't even say anything. Some doctor's <laughs> like, you son of a bitch. You know? But uh, yeah, Bill comes off as this big lumberjack uh, teddy bear guy. And he was. He worked in the logging industry for years with his father. And he's like, well, you know, I'm just a dumb old knife maker. Yeah, with a fine arts degree. and uh, It's amazing. He's, a, he's incredibly intelligent. As a matter of fact, we were at a show here on the East Coast. And we're going through D.C. And we said, well, let's go to the Spy Museum. Then after that, let's go to the Smithsonian. He's like, okay. So we go to the Spy Museum. We go to the Smithsonian, we get out of our car, and he's like, hold on a second. He pulls out his phone, and his old- His brick. His, his old brick. <laughs> he goes, hey, yeah, Dr. Stanford from the Smithsonian's going to come out and give us some badges so we can just walk around in the back. You know, this guy's got a backdoor pass to the Smithsonian. Well, so probably because some of his stuff is in the Smithsonian. Right. Yeah. That's amazing. Some Clovis points he made yeah, back he, in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, well, he's in a napping rocks and stuff. So- Intelligent guy. How do you feel about- So, like, I know- Bill and I mean, you used to forge knives too, right? Like this all started like initially with um, you know where it started. I worked in a gun shop when I was in, in first group at Fort Lewis, a place called uh, McCann's Gun Shop, and uh, he, he's deceased now. But uh, people may know him. He's the guy who made the uh, the early UNS night vision mounts for the sniper rifles in SF. Okay, but uh, you know, I'd, I'd work on guns on the weekend. I said, "Hey, man, I want to make a knife." He's like, "Sure, just you know, do it on your own time. You just lock up on your way out." So we had an old Bridgeport, and I, I bought some some steel and made some knives and I showed it to Richard McCann, the guy who owned the store. And I said, what do you think of this? He's like, well, that looks like shit. He goes, do you want to show it to anybody? He's like, well, I, I, I guess not. <laughs> you know, so we did two or three of those, threw them in the trash and I finally made one for myself. And then, you know, it's the same old story you always hear. Hey, can you make one of those for me? I started making them for buddies in first group. It was a hobby. Then they shipped me off to Japan, Okinawa, and I didn't have the ability to bring tools. So I, it kind of died there. So Going back then, to, uh, you mentioned, you know, Bill having a fine arts degree. Uh, I mean, the functionality is obviously crucially important for the right. knives, but the design's really important as well. Even if, even if only aesthetically, right? You know, like <clears throat> I'm looking online at knives, and you know, what do I want to buy? Obviously, I want something that's functional, but you know, especially if I'm spending a lot of money, I want sure. something that looks really cool too, right? So, you know, I've got some thoughts on knife design. That's a, what? <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Well, you picked up the sheath knife that Aaron like. Aaron's... I'm a knife designer now because I have to, right? Yeah, you... It's um, we find the simpler we make the knife, sharp, pointy with a comfortable handle. But the, the the simpler we make the knife, the more aesthetically pleasing it is, and the more people want to buy it. Uh, I, I think if you were to stand on the sidewalk in Las Vegas, no, not handing out cards to strip joints. <laughs> Doug. If you were to stand on the I sidewalk in Las cards. Vegas. Hand people a magic marker and a whiteboard, 100 people, and say, draw a knife, we'll give you 10 seconds. 
they're generally going to be a certain shape. And if you if you basically design a knife to that shape, you're going to get pretty close to what most people perceive as what they want. Sure, but so I think, clean and simple and functional. You know, when I look works. at like uh, you know this folder that, that Brian has um, that I have in my pocket as well. You know the the detail that is in all of the little pieces that go into you know putting the knife together, you know how sure. you're attaching <clears throat> the handle, you know the two sides of the handle together to the blade, etc. When you look at that knife, you can tell there's a lot of care and a lot of choice that went into putting that together. It wasn't yeah, just there's a lot of care, it. choice, and technology. <clears throat> I mean, both the scales are made out of titanium. Well, in order to make that part, you've got to water jet that part out. And if you don't have flat parts, your blade's never going to center up when you close a folding knife. So those need to be double disc ground. Well, they're not magnetic, so you're not putting it on a surface grinder. So you've got to find somebody with specialized equipment to be able to grind that part flat. I mean, literally the titanium is so flat, our parts, after we have them ground, that the capillary action holds them together and we have to bust them apart. Wow. So, so there's, a, yeah, there's a lot you don't see that go into making a good folder. Uh, it's funny, it will sometimes tell people of our, our price point on our knife. And they're a little taken aback, and then we walk them through the process, and they're like, oh, well, shit, I'll take two of them. Because once they understand what goes into making that knife, the technology, you know, the, the citizen Swiss machines that turn small parts, uh, a decision on, on the thread in order to keep them locked up, the heat treat, the manufacturing, people get it. Yeah, I was more, when I first saw the Spartan folder online, I was more excited about that knife than any knife I'd ever seen. It's like I had owned two Sabenzas, full-size Sabenzas, mm -hmm. lost them both in Iraq, two different deployments, like literally one of the saddest moments. I remember calling yeah. Doug. Yeah, there's like, a big valley in Iraq. All the lost socks out of the dryers and <laughs> all, the, all the folding knives are laying there. Yeah, like I, I was, and it wasn't like I was like cool like on a target when I lost the first one. I was literally like bobcatting over like a field of reeds or something so we could create a golf course off the back of our team house. And yeah, so I lost. <laughs> it's like valuable loss. Yeah, valuable loss. So I lost this $500 folder, but I really loved I mean, there's nothing like a Sabenza, like the bank vault feel and all that sort of stuff, which is what really separated it out for me and, of course, the cutting cutting service. And then I saw this, and I was like, look at that. It looks like a Sabenza, like, like the build quality, but it's like also looks like a Yarborough, and it looks like – that's the one thing about Sabenza. It has no ergonomics to it, really, as far as the handle. It's like here is the perfect – blade thing and this is like all of that just pumped up an order of magnitude like it's so comfortable to use and handle it opens like, like a dream oh my gosh yeah it's just well and just I, screams quality i would like to point out the the design stuff that aaron was talking about like the fine arts if you look at the project drawings of like bill's rendering mm -hmm. like in his mind like this is what my knife is going to look like like the first drawing that bill ever did of the spartan harzy folder is gorgeous, like frameable. You can put it up on a wall art, like a technical drawing that's got shading. I mean, it's yeah, we talked about actually framing some, selling prints. It's it's ridiculous. Well, you should. <laughs> I, was, I, 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 I would buy it. No, I mean it's it's yeah. it's amazing that Bill can envision this. I mean, what are the tolerances on? Like, what are, what are we talking about on that folder? Where the lock on the folder, the titanium lock, meets the steel blade. If you're off by more than three thou, your lock will go too far or not drop far enough. Okay. So it's it's pretty critical. It's like three thousandths of an inch. And Bill has dreamed up these tolerances in a simple pencil drawing 
of of his prototype. Oh, sure. And, and then then he calls us. He goes, hey, uh, I want to do an iProject with you. And we said, well, we'll have to think about it. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> whatever. Of course, just tell us what to do and we'll do it, Bill. You know. <laughs> You're kind of a big deal. Yeah, I mean, you have a Wikipedia page, right? Yeah. But uh, he hates when I say that. You know, I'm Bill Harsey, bitch. He's like, don't say that first. That's not nice. But uh, he goes, hey, here's the deal. I've made knives with other companies before. Um, what I want you to do is take this design and make the best knife that I've ever been involved with. I was like, oh, okay. Which is saying don't a lot. The There's our mission. It. No, you know? which is saying a lot because before the podcast, we were talking to you about the best knife we had ever seen before the Spartan Harsey folder, which was the Lone Wolf D2. Oh, yeah. Fantastic knife. Which was conveniently designed by Bill Harsey. <laughs> and, and this is a knife that, like, I mean, I told Bill when we were at Blade Shows, like, I want to buy a folder. I don't have $600 to spend on a folder. And uh, so what should I buy? And Bill was like, well, buy this Lone Wolf. And I'm like, uh, he, was, he was so cavalier about it. And the price point on it was so low. What was it, like 180 bucks, Brian? Something like that. It was like it's 180 bucks. It's basically like buying a Benchmade. Yeah. And and he's like, yeah, that's the one you want. And I'm like, mm, I don't know, maybe it's not. And I was playing with it, and it feels great. But like, then he's like, oh yeah, find the button for the auto opener. I'm like, it's not an auto opener, Bill. Like it opens and it closes like a normal pocket knife. And he's like, no, close it and find the button. So I'm like, I messed with it. It was like a Chinese puzzle, you know? You're like, yeah. I, I you know what those things sell for now? Double. Probably double or triple what you paid for him back in the day. Really? Oh, yeah. Dude, I mean, so Lone Wolf went out of business, and we, I mean, just for a variety of, you know, unfortunate circumstances, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and those knives still, like, I still have the one in my safe. It's hand-signed by Bill, so it's like a- You should have bought 10 of them. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I it's, have- it's, it's like I when I was in first group, they gave us a hand-ground custom Emerson CQC7s, and we, like, gave them away to- Brian to pulled it out of it, pulled it up in his phone. And you could see, yeah, it's 200 and- and forty dollars, but you can see the evolution of Bill's design. Like mm -hmm. this is like absolutely. It's, there's definitely this was the 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 parent of this knife. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And it's, 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 it's a great knife. He, yeah, that's what he said. He goes, I, I want to make it what I wanted it to be. We said, all right, you give us a direction, let us know. We'll, we'll do everything in our power to make it happen. Well, it, it, it's come a long way, and I think that it says a lot that you guys are accomplished knife designers and makers. And I really wanted to buy y'all's first folder. Until I got it in my hands, and no offense mm -hmm. to your first folder, but like it was, it was your prototype, like learning it, it, how it to build a, a little, It was a little over engineered, and yeah. and it's, and thick, right? So like, oh yeah, it's one of these things where it's, it's beautiful in pictures. It's a really nicely designed knife, and then you pick it up, and you're like, wow, mm -hmm. this is thicker than I expected it to be in the handle. And when we've talked about yeah. like the tech specs that went into creating a good folder, I understand why it is, but I also understand why you went from like. Eh, sales. Oh, yeah, and, and that's, you know, people think, well, I'm going to start a knife company. I'll just design some knives. There's a lot of work. And, you know, the difference between knowing and understanding is experience. Ha. Huh. <laughs> it's actually a blog um, post coming out. Yeah. Yeah. But, about but, that but very that's thing. a big difference between knowing and understanding. And uh, we're constantly learning. And we haven't learned at all. We, we don't know everything. Um, we're constantly evolving. We're constantly looking at new designs. But, you know, it's funny. When we started out, Bill Harsey said, well, who's going to design your knives for you? I said, well, I am. He goes, oh, do they teach that in a Q course? <laughs> and I was like, oh, sick bird. No. But, because, because, I, because I love that. It's like, you know, you'll, you'll see commercials all the time. This knife developed with input from U.S. US Army Special Navy Forces. No, you were going to say Navy SEALs. I was going to say Navy SEALs. <laughs> yeah. We love our SEAL you brothers out there. But, 
designed with input from Navy SEAL. Oh, because oh, my girlfriend's uncle was in the SEALs in the 1960s. He said we should put a point on it. You know, yeah. it's, it, it doesn't mean <laughs> anything. Because in Buds, they show you how to do how to build like tourney push-up things. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I take my Glock pistol and I put it in this big clip-on fucking stock design, it'll be vastly superior, yep. almost yeah. like a rifle. No, it, but, but, but his point was, hey, listen, you're intelligent guys, and I know you know what you're doing, but knife design is an art, and I know how to do it. So let let me help, and it, man, I've learned so much from Bill. I but uh, it. but his point in saying that was, hey, you know, being special forces does not make you a knife designer. Well, and one of the things, you know, kind of go back to when you were talking about simplicity and like the basic knife design. One of the things that I think the knife that probably got me really interested in knives was finding one of Chris Reeves' old one piece knives. Oh yeah, well she still made those. Man, I mean, talk about simplicity, right? I mean, it's one piece of steel. Yeah knurled handle goes right into the blade and it that's it you know there's like nothing fancy about it at all there's that's no right. no frills on it but you look at it and immediately especially if you're seeing it in person i mean you're immediately struck or at least i was at the like high level of craftsmanship that went in to make this like completely completely simple design so amazingly beautiful um, and, and finding that, like getting to that place where you can have both of those in the same thing, that I think is, you know, the sign of like a true, like master craftsman, true Oh, sure. Designer. And you see in the design right away. And, and that's the magic of, of quality design. You know, you'll see, for example, pens. This is the minimalist pen. The universe designed this pen. No, it's a tube with some shit on the end of it. <laughs> you know? But simplicity and design that draws your eye to it and makes you want to hold it and flip it and play with it. That, that's the magic. That's the magic design part. Yep. Yeah. I why I know Chris stopped making those one piece knives when the guy that made the blanks passed away. Right. Yeah. Uh, a good friend of his in South Africa uh, started making the blanks for him, doing some of the machine work. You know, Chris was a, a machinist in South Africa, and uh, his friend made the blanks for him, would ship them over, and he'd complete them. And you know, he he's a pretty honorable guy, and. Uh, He's like, you know what? That's my friend. He's not doing them anymore. Uh, that was part of the magic and the part I loved in making that knife. I'm just not going to make it anymore. Have you guys considered making a one piece knife, or is that kind of is that kind of his territory? Would that if be he's, if he's not going to do it? Would that be sacrilegious? <clears throat> I think it, it might not be sacrilegious. It's just it was a special knife, and we'd like to kind of leave it there. Leave it that way. Yeah, we, I mean, we've had other companies ask us to make knives of of knife makers that have passed away. Mm-hmm. And say, well, hey, you know, he's not around anymore. You can make this now. We just, we're not doing that shit. <laughs> that's a dick you know, move. That's a dick move. We, but I mean, we don't do that. The Enyo is a, is a one and, piece. And Chris knife. is alive and well. I talked, to, I talked to him the other day. It's just, it's a special knife. Would we consider it? Sure. If Chris said it was okay, maybe. Well, there it's it just, is. It's just Hopefully not something. Chris listens to this podcast. It's just not something that we'll uh, we're looking him. at right now. <laughs> yeah. So, like, going back to what we were talking about earlier about um, high end cutlery and like what that that means for a lot of people bill really i know it just become like the bill hartsey story <laughs> hour but like when i got into knives and that first sabenza was in my hand and i used it i was like oh okay this is what a blade sh- how it should perform like i'd never used a really sharp cutting mm-hmm. instrument and i was getting into cooking at the time and i asked bill i was like hey man like, so kitchen knives, like, do you build those? You know, I was so yeah. like, I was so naive. I didn't realize he's like, well, yeah, I made like the kitchen knives for the woman, for Alice Waters, like the, yeah. the head chef of Chez Pennies. you know, <laughs> I was like, okay, neat. How much would those cost, Bill, if you were to make it for me? He's like, well, let's, we can talk about that later. One billion dollars. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like literally, but never, you know, that's, he'll that's never talk money, bro. Like it, I've been mm-hmm. asking him it. 
any cost, I would love for you to make me a folder. Ryan Renewart's been asking him for, what, a decade? Yeah, yeah, I get phone calls from people. About 10 years ago, Bill said he might make me a folder, and he, he I can't get him to answer my email. Will you talk to him <laughs> for me? And we don't do that. You know, yeah, we yeah. don't do that. But you know, you're well, talking about kitchen knives. That's the largest portion of the cutlery industry. I mean, we just went down to Cutco. Just yeah. to, I just wanted to see how they made stuff. Uh, we're, we're doing some projects with K-Bar. K-Bar is owned by Cutco. But uh, when I saw the amount of kitchen knives that are put out in the world, it's incredible. But that's a very difficult market to get into. We have a good friend named John Horgan. You guys may know him. Yeah. His, his brother was a friend of ours. He's a fellow sniper. He's a, a, a CAD guy. And um, he makes you know $11,000 buoy knives. They almost all go to these millionaires overseas. But he tried making a kitchen knife. He's like, Curtis, I can't sell a kitchen knife for 200 freaking dollars, man. It's just you kind of get pigeonholed into, you know, we're the combat knife guys. We're, you know, some people are the kitchen knife guys. Some people like, are yeah, the buoy like the, guys. There's the Murray Carters of the world that are doing like the yeah, kitchen that's knife right. thing. And, yeah, well, make a knife become Bill a ninja hooked, type Bill linked me up yeah. with the Shun guys, you know, because he was Kershaw. Fantastic people. And yeah. um, so he, you know, he sent an email and literally I got one, for, I think for free, you know, like an eight inch or a 10 inch chef's mm-hmm. knife, which I still use. And of course, that revolutionized like my cooking. I was like, "Oh crap!" So I got into like knife techniques and all oh, that sure. sort of stuff and cutting, and um, which we'll probably end up doing some some videos on uh, knife technique in the kitchen with yeah, those Brooke. Kai Shun kitchen knives are, fan- and they've won like a, you know kitchen knife of the year last three years running it, and the they're National beautiful. Yeah, I mean they really and are. They are they're beautiful, but yeah. it's amazing how much money like like you said like that really is the razor fight for a nickel part of the knife yeah. world. It seems like. Well, I tell you, the razor fights and cutlery is uh, we have a lot of these Purdue chicken farms and chicken farms all over North Carolina. They go through thousands and thousands of knives a year. But they but sharpen them into nothing, right? They sharpen them into nothing, throw them away, and they order hundreds more. If I could crack the uh, the cheap ass kitchen or chicken knife market, you know you'll what? never hear from us again. So <laughs> we uh, we own no, a butcher kidding. shop out in Saxpaw, North Carolina, uh-huh. and uh, another knife maker, like small knife maker. Uh, made a set of butcher knives and uh i was introduced to this guy without even seeing the knives you know it's like yeah you know like i'm gonna order some and i'm gonna bring them to the shop and we'll take pictures for you and everything i mean i'm not asking for them for free we paid for them the knives came i brought them over to the butcher shop and uh we i dropped them off and a week later i came back and said you know guys what do you think and they were like man no one wants to use these knives and you know the reason was at the shop, there's zero interest in what the knife looks like. That's right. Right? And basically these guys, you know, we spent half an hour and and the head butcher basically was like, okay, here are the knives you brought us. Here are the knives we use. Let's, like, look how vast the differences are. What do they use, and, like Dexter, <clears throat> cutler, like like professional uh, white-handled type <clears throat> knives? Yeah, it's like, like, I mean, yeah, p- like big plastic handles. Yeah. Um, you know, they're sharpening mm-hmm. the knives all the time. Victorian Ox type stuff, fiber The biggest thing was that, you know, the knives that these guys had made, like, looked really cool, but the, you know, mm-hmm. the boning knives and that kind of thing that the guys are using in the shop have, like, some of them have really deep curves. They're all, like, very thin knives. You know, like, they, the blades are very thin. The knives that we had gotten had these, like, you know, like, really thick spines on them. These guys were like, man, you know, these they're just either they're not big enough to be the big knives and they're not small enough to be the kind of dexterous type yeah. knives. I've, I've always had a love for butcher knives. When I was a kid, I used to go visit my grandfather in, in, in uh, Georgia, Tacoa, Georgia, where the Airborne started, right? Curry, you guys. Mal- but we'd yeah. go down and visit him. He would take a butcher knife, take silver dollars, weld one on top, one on, on the bottom, tell us they were hunting knives and let us loose in the woods. I mean, this country was was 
taken with high carbon trade knives. I mean, yeah. you look at the knives people use to, to, to move west, wooden handle, high carbon, sharp as hell. You know, the knife met the task at hand. Yeah. You know? Hell yeah. What about, uh, I mean, going back to the food stuff, like high end sushi knives, would you guys make a, uh, like an eight inch? Guess what? No. Like, Guess what? Curtis makes a ton of money selling <laughs> titanium chopsticks. To, Oh yeah, Japan. Oh, they're, they're anti because they're antiseptic or whatever. They don't like hold bacteria. Oh, like yeah, like they're hyperallergenic. Yeah, oh, there okay, you go. Fine. Hyper hypo. Yeah, so Japanese people love the because they're unique, personalized. So do New Yorkers and California Californians. But they no, love su- them. no sushi knives coming out of Spartan, huh? No, no. It's it's a very very competitive market, and if they're not made in Japan, most people don't want to look at them. Right. They're high carbon steel, usually made out of Hitachi, high carbon steel out of Japan. And China. So really? We, so we'd be looking at competing, you know, and that's just, again, it, that'd be a razor fight. Well, that's, that, that's I didn't realize, just, to, just one last word about kitchen cutlery is uh, I joined like a couple of subreddits on kitchen knives and stuff like that. And I didn't realize how many, just how much volume of kitchen cutlery was coming out of Japan. Like the yeah, amount of companies amazing. and the amount of versions, like- I mean, it's just insane. I think there is a well, guy in South Carolina, I feel like, maybe near Charleston, that may, has made kind of a splash. Jason like, Knight. Yeah, the kitchen knife uh, industry. It seems like he's kind of bucked the trend for doing higher end, you know. Yeah, and, and those guys are here. You get some folks in New York, too, that just make kitchen cutlery for chefs. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of a status symbol type thing. Great knives. Um, but you got to understand, you got people in Japan who've been sharpening and grinding kitchen knives all their life. Matter of fact, we have a good friend named Kiku Matsuda who lives in mainland Japan, and uh, he makes fantastic knives called Kiku Knives. But where he got to start was grinding knives for American knife companies on the side of a large stone. But he's, he's so efficient, they would give him several hundred knife blanks. He would watch Japanese soap operas as he ground these knives. I'm talking for Gerber, some of these other people used to manufacture in Japan, the Almar knives back in the day, but he would just do grind one after another, all day long as he's watching TV. And they're beautiful. Wow. He does masterful grinds. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of guys like Kiku over there that do just Japanese sushi knives. Interesting. And, uh, yeah. So what's next for you guys? I mean, <clears throat> where's, uh, you know, where's Spartan going? We actually had some, some Army guys come by yesterday and sit down and talk to us about some requirements they have. And uh, I, I think smaller fixed blade knives, we're going to do a few more. Yeah. We just designed uh, three for K-Bar. So uh, we, uh, they just bought the Eck Commando Knife Company about a year ago. So we did a kind of an introduction knife for them, a high-end Eck dagger. We did 200 for us, 200 for them, kind of, kind of as a way of creating some limited edition and making sure we could work together, and the project worked out fantastic. I own one of those knives. So, uh, we, Do you? Yeah. Uh, zero, zero, 007, number zero, zero, 007. So we, met, seven. we met with K-Bar. We're working some projects there. They want to do some American-made type fixed-blade knives. Uh, Spartan Blades is going to do another small fixed blade knife. We've talked to some some army guys, and they're tending to move away from the you know kill everybody, kill everybody, raid, raid, raid. Okay, man, well, now we're going to go talk to some people. You know? So they want some small. So they want something they to open away. an MRE with. Exactly. Well, <laughs> that's exactly. I mean, in reality, that's what they're for. I mean, we'll go to shows and people they'll come up. You guys are in special forces, right? And we're like, yeah, we, yeah, we we were. So what'd you do with the knives in there? You know, when you were in special forces. I carry so I, I a Yarbrough yeah. knife every day of every deployment, hoping that someone yeah. would try me and but, I'd get a knife kill. But I'll, I'll lean happened. into them and I'll wave them towards me. Come here so nobody hears and I'll lean in and say, you know, 
we cut tape and paracord. And, <laughs> and, and I'm not kidding you. One time I even cut the margin off my map. Call me crazy. Yeah. I know that's some crazy shit right there. Dude, but, but my point you know, is- How would you kind know the scale? Yeah, yeah. But we do the same things, I mean, that you would do with a knife. You know, we cut the same yeah. shit. Matter of fact, I told a guy, I said, you know, this knife would be just as well when you're putting together your daughter's, you know, Barbie playhouse. And he's like, what the fuck? He's talking about Barbie playhouses and shit. But my point was, you use it for everyday utilitarian tasks. That's why when we go up to, you know, to New York, for example, you're a criminal, you got a knife. I was like, well, I mean, how do you, how do you open, what do you do on Christmas? Yeah. Just bite all the plastic off your kid's toys that you break your teeth? <laughs> we use, Come on. We use scissors. Chris. I use scissors my knife just like you, scissors. one Amazon box at a time. Yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> the last knife question I'm going to ask you about making stuff. Sure. The Softly Spartan collaboration. Possibility? I don't know. It cost a lot, a lot of money. Yes. Um, yeah, of yes. course. We'd love to do that, man. It's it's our community. It's our friends. We'd be happy to do something like that. I like awesome. that you waited to get him on the podcast to force him. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, I have to ask this question. We've been talking about it for what six months or a yeah, year about now? six months. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, the the hardest part about that process. I mean, since we're talking about it, is that we all have five hundred dollar folders in our pockets right now. And we love them. However, the market of the soft lead athlete is not one which, I mean, I wouldn't dream of asking someone to buy a $500 knife or see the value that I see in a $500 knife, right? But we all know what a good knife is and we know what a good knife costs. So then becomes the eternal battle of we want a product that represents who we are at soft lead, like the quality level. But we also want a product that is achievable, like something that the, a regular softlead athlete can afford. And I, have I don't understand why to. that's a problem. Let's do that. <laughs> we want the most. We want the best stuff, and we want it at a very reasonable price. Um, uh, just so everybody out there knows, we'll be making five hundred incredibly great knives that softly is going to give away next month. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, things just got fucked up. <laughs> That's a great idea, Doug. Is that what you're getting at? You're going to give all the knives away? No, this I think we'll make, yeah, we'd be happy to make a quality knife that's affordable that people will love. And we talk, and we've with talked a good about, heat treat and you know, good steel. And we've talked about what that looks like. I mean, um, yeah. what what's the name? Payless. I, yeah, the Payless. Like using that as a model and kind of remodeling mm -hmm. the handle into more something we like. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I think it's it's definitely like a, a debate about what a good knife, especially a folder, looks like. Because we, I know that you initially were like, well, let's just do a, a sheath knife. And I was like, look, like we can do sheath knives, but who really carries a sheath knife every day? Like if you're going to spend a good chunk of change on a knife that you're going to use every day, Curtis is like, no. Yeah, he's pulled a folder out. But well, I mean. I think the original sheath knife design was really not designed to be like an everyday carry it was really more for you know like something to have in your kit like that you could grab easily if you were wearing gloves i mean like are we talking know? about the um <clears throat> the one from uh what's his face or are we, we're not talking about the one that got made by um uh the connor tour yeah the tour knife you have a tour one yeah you know that was that was not designed as like a, i'm gonna necessarily wear this every day type knife god guys tried though the price point was right at the thing where it was like i am gonna wear this every day and you're like it's a little long for that like if my dick was this long i wouldn't even be worried about carrying a knife at all <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't know how that relates, but so, uh, so what size knife do you want? <clears throat> I want a small one, <laughs> six inches. Yeah, right. what my wife calls six inches. All right, Curtis, so, a very manageable size, easily concealable. Six inches, you know, about the length of a car key. Something that nobody's going to feel <laughs> except me until it sticks you. <laughs> right. Anyway, um, yeah, I'd love. I mean, we'd love to do something. Yeah, we'd love to guys, take a look so at that. Yeah, we'll I think it's very doable. Have to continue that conversation. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, so how, speaking of that, how are you guys keeping things interesting? Like, how do you maintain your, your passion for doing what you're doing? You know, what, how does that not get old for you? You know, what do you do to like, no pun intended, kind of like keep that edge sharpened personally? Well, a part of what I love about it is, uh, is the design side of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you think how many different designs you have in your head and, you know, I don't know if I've reached reach a limit of that. So, I, so I don't know. I love the design. I love the marketing side of it. Uh, Mark and I are kind of two different people. We kind of, but we, we meld together perfectly. My partner, Mark Carey, he handles a lot of the, uh, the administrative side of things, you know, like we even have insurance, liability insurance. I don't know where it came from, but Mark found it somewhere. You know, <laughs> Mark handles those kind of things. He can tell you how many green handles we did in 2010. Mark Mark is never shy of shorting me five percent of my wholesaler discount. Right. <laughs> it's like uh, I give you a discount. Like it's not it, big it's enough, just Mark. To <laughs> create a visual for you, we have an office where we, you know, our desks look at each other. Mark's desk is covered in white pieces of paper and purchase orders, and mine's covered in magic markers and colored pens and Apple shit. A Mac <laughs> Pro, a Mac Pro. There's a Mac Pro there, yeah. and, oh. and Mark yeah. has a Dell because. They work the way he wants it to work, you know? So uh, we just kind of, the shit I don't know how to do, he can do, and, and vice versa. And it just it works out fantastic. It's a good partnership. No, it really is a good partnership. And, and uh, you know, we find the passion in design. You know where we find a lot of passion comes from the customers, talking to the customers. You know, we, we go to several shows a year. We go to SHOT Show, Blade Show. We go to the, the EWA Show in Nuremberg. And if, that's basically the SHOT Show for Europe. It's actually, mm-hmm. I think, larger than SHOT Show. And we do the custom knife shows, New York custom knife show to California custom knife show. And just when you think the knife world's getting boring, you see a just fantastic design or you meet this new young designer, you know, who's, who's doing fantastic stuff. Um, so there's still a lot of passion there, you know, and, and it's not only that, but it's the mission, you know, it's, it's, it's the mission of building a company, making it viable, you know, watching it grow, you know, it's like raising a child. Yeah. You know? No, I think, uh. We're all very fortunate, everyone sitting at this table, to be able to be working on something that we're passionate about. You know, oh, yeah, most, absolutely. Most people don't get that opportunity. So That's why most people don't know success. <clears throat> well, I mean, honestly, if you want to be successful, find something you're passionate about and focus your passion on it. Yeah, right? if, if you're or waiting for a happy really life to come, no one else wants to do. If, if you're waiting for your life to be what you always wanted to be and you want to be happy, you better get off your ass and go make it happen. Otherwise, it's never going to come to you. But I do think, like, Brian's point when he's like, hey, uh, just find something crappy nobody else wants to do. Like, legitimately, I've not met anybody that does something crappy that nobody else wants to do that isn't passionate about that thing. Like, they get excited. They're like, this thing that nobody else wanted to do, I just crushed that market. And you're like, man, you, like, suck up shit through a yellow tube. Like, you have 500 dudes working for you that suck up shit through a small tube and put it in a truck. It's like, yeah, nobody wanted to do it. I make a ton of money doing it. But I'm always impressed by how people make money. I mean, yep. some. Somebody puts the little rubber things on the end of bobby pins. Somebody fucking puts those there, and somebody's making money doing it, and somebody has a passion for it. You know, we were talking about this with some Army guys the other day who are getting close to retirement, 
We're like, listen, you look at some of these former army guys who are becoming multimillionaires printing t-shirts. Everybody prints t-shirts. But if you like what you're doing and you're good at it and, and you take care of your business, you, I mean, you can make money doing anything. You, you really can. We probably shouldn't talk about making millions of dollars printing t-shirts. Brian has a knowing face. Oh, no, I just... And then a, a, a wry shrug. Yeah, you can, <laughs> you can make money being exploitative. Well, well, I mean, <clears throat> I, I'll just say this. The blade cuts both ways. Seems yeah. like a good analogy for the day. <laughs> no, I think at the end of the day, though, it's about taking intelligent risk, right? I mean, That's right. Just, Mitigated risk. Not yeah. just jumping blindly off the cliff. Um, write a business plan. But, write that's, several. Uh, that's a no, problem that's, with a lot of entrepreneurs is that guys get out and that's starting to become sort of a culture, at least in special forces, of guys like wanting to start businesses when they get out. Thankfully, the Greenberry Foundation has done some work with their Next Ridgeline program yeah, to try to, fantastic to help program. that along. And uh, Doug and I and uh, a guy named Al Wilson who owns D'Espresso Libera, the coffee company out of Seattle, started a special forces chamber of commerce, which kind of links people together. Doing cross promotional stuff for special forces on mutual business. mutual hand well, one jobs. One of the dangers you run into as as a special forces guy or a special operations community guy starting a business is quite often you're used to doing a lot with not much, which is great. Or working a little bit harder to achieve a goal, you, and that works great starting out, and it's probably going to bring you some success. But you're going to start to hit hit a high point there where you know just busting your ass and doing everything yourself to make sure it happens right, or doing something with nothing starts to flatline your business. Then you have to stand back and say, you know what, man, they have business degrees for a reason. There's experts out there on internet marketing and photography for a reason. One of the things you got to do is know what you're good at. And I got it. People can hate me for saying this. Know yourself and seek self-improvement. You probably heard that in Beanock. Yeah. yeah. Bro, I've been preaching that shit. But but it's true. (laughs) For years. Know what you're not good at. Go find those experts and have them help you. Stand back and look at your business because Busting your ass, hard work, getting up, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, you got to do those things. You have to do, do those things to start out. But at some point, you got to take a step back and see the forest through the trees and say, oh man, I've been, I've been doing some things dumb. We, we had a guy come in who ran a, some pretty big businesses, Swatch, Gillette, Parker Pen Company, who's retired in our community. He came by the other day and spent three hours with us and told us more about our business than we knew as an outsider. So- you can't let your head get too big. Hard work and you know, and jumping on on the grinder like me, literally on the freaking grinder. But I'm a veteran, works, Curtis. I'm a hero. I know anything that goes wrong, I can fall back on my hero and, status. And, and, I, and that's why I strongly recommend everybody wears a hat because all <laughs> you put on a hat, you're a hero. All heroes wear some kind of hat. That's yeah, true. Absolutely. I have a three pointer. Um, <laughs> well, I, and I've actually seen the opposite problem as well with veteran started companies. Is a lot of guys are used to having an enormous amount of resources. You know, they're used to being able to like pick up the phone and call and like the HIMARS come in or the airstrike comes or whatever. There's some outside entity that has a lot of money that can help them. And so they assume that that's going to be a bank or investors or whatever. And they they just don't know the game at all. And that's also how they end up losing their ass because they do get the HIMARS does come in. It's just it's not a very precision Device. Or, no, or no, they, that's, yeah, that, they, that's a great point. People will run to a bank or they'll have somebody says, Man, I really like what you're doing and you're you're a green bray. I'll invest a hundred thousand dollars. We have people offering yeah, to give us money all for thirty five percent. But almost all those people <laughs> want that money back in some form. It's yep. crazy, I know. It's amazing. You have to have a <laughs> you have know, to have a return. We, Mark and I each pitched in a few thousand dollars. We have never taken a loan. We've built it and reinvested it. 
but you know, to reinvest, I had to pay myself for two years. That's why I was out getting chased around by bad guys, freaking Iraq. But, but paying for your for startup every company. dollar you can reinvest in your business, your own money, you're reducing dramatically the amount of time it takes you to get where you want to go. Nobody yep. wants to be in business nine years just to find out they've got uh, $18 in the bank and they made somebody else rich. So look at money as a tool and use it wisely. And if at all possible, use your own money. Even if you have to start out smaller and you can't quite be what you want to be to start out, it pays huge, huge dividends on the other end. You do get to a point where you know, the ability to grab some cash and float the bank's money for a month or two, you know, is, is, is a smart thing to do. Open line to credit is always a fantastic thing. But if you want a fantastic open line to credit, fund yourself for five years, funnel a bunch of money through a bank and let them collect their few, you know, their, their percentage. Then you go ask them for money, they'll, they'll you know, they'll basically yeah, cause we wanna, they'll carry we you in the door. bleed you twice, man. They'll carry like, you in the door, right. you know. No, I think the other thing that you mentioned, you know, when you talked about, you know, calling Chris up is the fact that a lot of people don't seek help outside mm -hmm. or, you know, they seek too much help. So, you know, you get like an email or a phone call that's like, hey, can you teach me how to do X from, you know, from start to finish rather than, hey, can I sit down, can I have half an hour of your time to pick your brain or, you know, or can I get on the phone with you at some point to ask you a few questions? And if you can do that, most people are willing to give you a little bit of time you can oh, yeah. start cobbling together like a lot of really valuable information that comes from other people's experience that hopefully then will keep you out of learning lessons the hard way. Yeah, you, you, you don't know everything. I guarantee you don't know everything. And, and I would tell you, don't let your pride get in the way. If you don't know something, go find the answer and ask. People are so willing to give them themselves. You know, and sometimes they're just good, caring, giving people. Other times they just want you to know how smart they are. You know, in the military, in the intelligence, we call that elicitation, where you sit you sit down next to somebody, and next thing you know, they're giving you their social security number, you know, so you can, you can send it uh, forward. You can use those forms of elicitation in, in a kind and easy way and, and, and make friends. The other thing I will tell you, and I hear it all the time, man, I was going to start a business, I just, but you know, I got a wife and kids. You cannot let fear drive what you do. If you make decisions based on fear, you're, you're going to be someone's nug the There's rest of your fucking life. There's never a perfect time for anything. Is this right? kind of like no, I, mean, I would have There's never joined. a good time to say, I'm going to roll the dice and start my own business. But the rewards are freaking fantastic. Yeah, yeah mm. you're up here in Durham yeah. I mean, fucking off with us. Yeah. I mean, I'm talking to softly. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, where do I go now? <laughs> well, I just knew that. Wikipedia, you know, the, man. The things, yeah, the Blake, president wants to talk to you now. Things must be Come super, busy. super busy. Because, uh, you know, you, I was like, uh, hey, you want to be on our podcast tomorrow? And you were like, sure. And I was like, well, I guess it's good to know that things are uh, really pressing around the office. <laughs> that was literally my my mental image. It was like him like, oh, let me check my calendar. And then like papers like being thrown in the air. <laughs> I'll it's like, do oh, it. today's charity day. Yeah, I'll come out of You know, we love you guys. Well, but yeah, don't let fear drive what you do. Don't let fear, I mean, in, in any aspect of your life, if fear drives what you do, you're, you're messing up. Yeah. Well, I like this little uh, business knowledge unit that we kind of tacked down to the end of the knife podcast. Heck yeah, man. It's good stuff. Well, speaking so. of which, I've got to get on a call with Leupold about our budding romance there. So cool. there's my plug for Leupold for the day. <laughs> but uh, well, there's some good folks at, at Leupold. Yes, yeah. there are. I mean, years ago, I said, you know, we have a hard time milling. You know, half a mil is easy, but when it gets over half a mil, it's a little difficult. Can you put like quarter mil tick marks in there? And they're like, well, oh, shit. Yeah, why not? See? So, 
So I'm not. I'm not saying I'm taking credit for that, even though some people call me Mildot. That's really. It's really weird you should say that because professionals yeah. don't use Mildot anymore, Curtis. Yeah. Well, that Imrad. That Imrad life. <laughs> <laughs> well, Curtis, thanks for joining us today. Can't wait to have you back I'm on the podcast, and looking forward to to the Softleet Spartan collaboration, whatever whatever form that may take. But uh, where can people find you if they're interested in following you guys, either on social media or just buying Spartan products? Uh, you can find us at www.spartanbladesusa.com or in Aberdeen, North Carolina, right off US 1. Come by the shop. Great. Thanks again. Knifemakerhotthrobs.com. <laughs> <laughs> hey, being beautiful is a lot of hard work. <laughs>